Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. This morning is a very normal Lord's Day, and yet it is a little bit different, too. Um, And strangely enough, one of the things that we received back when we, uh, in at least beginning in 1517, was preaching through God's Word so that God's people would know what it says. So that God's people would know who God is better. And so that God's people would know what God expects of them, but also so that we would know and understand the good news that despite the fact that there are expectations, we will never live up to them. And that's okay because Christ did it on our behalf. So it's a little strange this morning that the one Sunday that maybe I should be celebrating preaching through books of the Bible the most I've actually chosen to do a topical sermon, which means that we're going to be talking about an idea from God's Word this morning. And I'll warn you right now, this is not my strong suit, okay? But I know that my works don't have to be perfect this morning, okay? (laughs) So bear with me. See, usually when we come together on a Sunday, my main task is to preach, This word, preach, in the scripture carries with it the idea of a messenger running back from the battlefield into the city and yelling out, victory has been won, you are safe, all is well. They are to go through the streets and make sure that everyone hears the good news. The messenger in this situation would be doing his job wrong if he were to set up camp outside the city with a big chalkboard and a bunch of chairs and say, gather round students, now you will learn about all the many ways that the battle went well and all the many ways that the battle went poorly and the ways in which um, battle works and the way, in, okay, that would be the wrong way of going about the proclamation, the preaching of the good news that the battle has been won. And so, when I stand here on Sunday mornings, my task is simple, to proclaim, to be a messenger, to shout out in every possible way, from every possible biblical text, that there is a battle that has been fought and won for you and for me. We were doomed. We were surrounded. We were encamped on every side. Our enemies had us. But then, a fearless warrior came and gave his life for us. And we won the battle without lifting a finger. We know that Jesus was put to death for our sin. And that he was raised by the glory of God and the power of the Spirit for our justification. That is this word, I know it's a fancy word that I use all the time. Us being made right with God. 
being seen as righteous in God's eyes. As we just confess together, it's like putting on Jesus' robe, and when God the Father looks at us, He sees no one but His Son. His Son in all of His perfection and in all of His beauty. So is it wrong for me to teach? No. I'm doing it right now, aren't I? Oh, I'm doing it again. I'm teaching. But, if I were to treat every Sunday like a lecture, we would hear every week, over and over again, the things that we were doing wrong. And like a good parent, sure, I would correct, and I would encourage you to do better. But, if I never got around to proclaiming the gospel to you, well, we could say, hey, Wait, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, it's, it's much more helpful that you taught us something that we can use this week. For those of us in this room that are Christians, I'm going to say this. Christian, ooh, it's where we take the first step wrong. It is right that we teach. In fact, usually the first half of my sermon every week is teaching. And hopefully... The second half of my sermon consists of two things, law and then gospel. That we see that we are held up to God's law and that we fall very short of it. No, hold on. Wait, what is, this, what is this law? Why are you talking like that? And that's our topic for this morning, is the law and the gospel. Through the law, God condemns. That is that he holds you accountable. That you and me are wrong. But through the gospel there is now no condemnation. So the law condemns us and in Christ there is no condemnation. So why am I talking about this? I'm not talking about this to say to you, hey, you listen to the way I construct a sermon every week? No. Because you and I both know that not every sermon's that great. I say this so that when you come to church, you'll know what you're hearing. I say this so that when you come to church and I say to you, Christian, you're wrong. You're sinful. You're bad. But Christ saved you. And now, live like a Christian. Now, there's a loving way to say that. But if I come to you and I say that, what you're hearing is law and then gospel and then law. And that's what you should not hear come out of my lips. And yet, I also want you to understand what purpose preaching has. In Romans chapter 10, Verses 14 to 17, the Apostle Paul says this to the church in Rome. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach? Right? Not a preacher now, it's they, it's everyone. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. 
But they have not all obeyed the gospel. How do you obey the gospel? We've talked about this and we'll touch on it again. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And Paul concludes in verse 17, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay, this sounds confusing to me. It sounds like what Paul's doing is, if that, then this, if that, then this, if that, then this. And it's a, it's a real train of thought you have to follow. And that's true. So I'm going to break it down a little bit. I'm going to break down Paul's argument here. In order to be saved, people must call upon the name of Christ. In order to call upon Jesus' name, people must believe. That is, that people must believe Jesus is a real person, that what he did is really good and really good for them. So there's teaching involved. In order to believe, people must hear about Jesus. No one will be taught to hear the good news, or no one will be taught or hear the good news without someone proclaiming it to them, shouting it out to them. No one is going to preach without being sent. Not everyone who is told of this good news will respond in faith. That is to say that they, not all that hear, will be saved. And then lastly, Paul summarizes his argument like this. One can come to faith only through hearing the gospel. And the specific message that must be heard is the word of Christ. That is the good news about Jesus as the crucified and risen Savior. Wade, why are you teaching us this right now? Are you expecting me to preach next week, Wade? I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Okay, no, maybe. Okay, no. I'm teaching you this in part so that you know that when we come here on a Sunday and you hear the same thing every single week, right? Especially lately, we open up Mark's Gospel. We're in next week, our 15th week in Mark's Gospel. Wade opens it up, he reads, he tells us what Jesus did, and then he tells us what Jesus is going to do, what Jesus has done for us, and what it means for us. Oh my goodness, it's the same thing every single week. This morning, I want to talk about this because I want you to know that there is a method to the madness. Or in one of my favorite stories, Moby Dick, Captain Ahab, who's the crazy captain of a ship that's hunting after this uh, mythic whale, says, my means are sane. That is, how I'm doing it makes a lot of sense, but my motive and my object are mad. He's saying, what I am doing and the way that I'm doing it, that's actually the crazy part. What I mean like by that is this. We have gotten used to the way that things work here at Mountain View. Uh, at least many of us have. Each week you come, you hear the good news preached to you. Why? I think because we need to hear it. For each one of us that are saved, we need to hear it every single week. Because we too easily fall into our own righteousness and our own works to save us. 
And we need a gentle reminder each and every week that we cannot save ourselves. So we preach the gospel, we teach the gospel, we shout out the gospel, even though it sounds like madness to the world. Even to many Christians. See, we are all inclined, we are all ready to lean back on the religion of the old Adam, our first father. Um, See, we know how great God is, and yet we're fairly certain that we can do better. Or rather, once God has saved us, we can say, hey, you know what? I'll take it from here, God. It's fine. Paul, in Galatians 3, verses 1 to 6, says this. Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, that word foolish is a, is a nice new translation of actually saying, Galatians, you're being idiotic. You're not using your brains. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, was not very nice. But he's essentially saying, you idiots. <laughs> Who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having, been, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? What's he talking about? Suffering. Loss of family that aren't Christians? Loss of respect in the community? Loss of people respecting you because they no longer see you as being diligent laborers for your own righteousness? This is the suffering that they have felt. If indeed it was in vain, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What do I mean by religion of our our first father, the old Adam? Frankly, I mean every religion that is not Christianity. Where man places himself and his works before whatever God may be, mostly for the approval of that God or for the approval of others. This includes, and I'm not just trying to hate right now, hear me. I say this in love, and I I say this because these are the people that we are called to love and to share the good news with. Contemporary Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, all are called to work for their salvation each and every week. They are called to place themselves under the yoke of slavery under law. And just in case you think that you and I are off the hook for that, we're not. Because this also includes modern day religions like dietism, 
right? <laughs> Diets can become laws, can't they? They do. They also make you thinner sometimes, but what do we do, right? Especially, I have a lot of friends that they, they eat a particular way, and then they look down on you for not eating that way, right? And all of a sudden, it becomes you versus the world. You're good eating. You're saving the planet by eating vegetables, or you're saving your own body by only eating meat. Or workout-ism. Or for all of us in this room, workahol. I can't even say this one right. Workaholicism. And unfortunately, things are not that much different in the Christian church at large. There are preachers who are constantly saying, you can have your best life now if you are simply trying your best. Try your best and God will forgive the rest. That's one side. And there's another side. And I think if we're honest, this is the side that we dislike more. Unless you're a natural-born Pharisee, then that's okay. There are legalists who are certain that we can be closer to God and godliness if we abstain from these, I'll say, 1,050 things. And that sounds like a made-up number, like I just pulled that out of the air. But you know what's so interesting? We're talking about law. We're talking about gospel. How many commands are given to Christians in the New Testament? I just gave you that number. 1,050 commands. 1,050 commands. And interestingly enough, when I cross-reference this number by searching some things online, all of the first two pages on Google search came up as Obey these 100 or 1,050 things or else you will not see the kingdom of God. Every Christian religious group in the world demanding that you actually obey these 1,050 things. If you want to, you know, things that are similar in the New Testament, if you really want to make that number smaller, we can take it down to 800. But there's still 800 hundred commands for us to follow. In fact, these two, this do your best and God will forgive the rest and follow this or else, are really the two things that we are always fighting against. It's two things that Martin Luther was pushing against as well. He started his ministry as a monk physically and emotionally beating himself for his failings in hopes that God would look upon him and be pleased with his efforts. And the other side was a tribe during this time, and still exists, that says, do what is in you, and God will take you the rest of the way. We hear this all the time, right? Do what is in you, and God will will do the rest. Christian, today I would encourage you not to do what is in you. Unless it is clearly a spirit-led thing that is in you. In response to both of these lies, Luther would later say, he is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. 
That is the one who is righteous. During the beginning of the Reformation, one of the things that Martin Luther led in was a proper separation of law and gospel. And that might sound like a very, oh wait, here you go, now you're going to bore us to death. Now you're going to bore us to death. But don't think like this, okay? I might be boring you to death, but don't think like this, not yet. Uh, We've already gone through this together in our Confession of Faith, chapter 12 of it, the harmony of law and gospel. And I'm going to read that now. We believe that the law of God is eternal, is eternal, is the eternal and unchangeable rule of God's moral government. Okay, what does this mean? Uh, in Matthew 5:17, we read this: "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets." Jesus says, "I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." Jesus doesn't get rid of the law. He says these laws still exist. They're good. They're a part of God's character. It teaches us how to be moral. And yet, I have come to fulfill them for you. Point two, it is the law that is, is holy, just, and good. In Hebrews 8.10, we read this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it Write them on their hearts, and I will be, my, be their God, and they shall be my people. It is holy, just, and good. So much so that God promises not just to have a law and a book, but that he's going to write that law on your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. Point three, the inability, of scripture, the inability which Scripture gives to fallen people to fulfill its precepts arises entirely from their love of sin. To say that in a different way, Scripture tells us that in our fallen state, we are totally incapable of living up to God's law. Are we going to do some things right? Sure, we are going to do some things right. And we're going to do many things wrong. Romans 3.20 says it like this, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And last point, to deliver them from this love of sin and to restore them through a mediator, that is Christ, to true obedience to the holy law is one great end of the gospel and of the means of growth connected with the creation of the visible church. In Romans 10.4, we read this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. In Jude, verses 20-21, But you, beloved, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What's Jude saying? Do, obey the law, and yet wait for the righteousness and mercy which Christ provides for you. Don't be weighed down by it. Throughout church history, there have been three functions of the law. Or if we want to say it like this, God uses the law in three different ways. The first of which is to reflect, like a mirror. 
And we've already read in Romans 3.20 that from the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's like this. We hold God's Word up in front of us and we read a command from God and we say, I'm going to try and I'm probably going to fail. And it's in that that we see that we are not God. So this is one use of the law. And it's the first use. It's the primary way that God uses the law in our lives. The second is to restrain. Okay, we see this, for instance, in the Ten Commandments. The second half of the Ten Commandments. Which is our responsibility to other people. Um, In it we see very much so that we are... Not to murder, not to steal things, not to do all of this. And this is how God restrains the fallenness that we carry with us. And then lastly is to reveal, to teach, to reveal to us how we should live in light of everything that we have been taught according to God's law. We see this in the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, and now we think we can follow the Ten Commandments. I, I will hopefully go through today without murdering someone. And yet, as we know from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us that if I hate a brother, it's like I have murdered him. If I have spoken hate against someone, it's like I have murdered them. Have I spoken hate? Yes. And I'll probably do it again before the day is up. The Sermon on the Mount is actually one of my favorite passages. I remember for the first, oh, how old am I now? 30, 32. For the first 30 years of my life, (laughs) I thought to myself, okay, that that beginning part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And he opened his mouth, Jesus, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. And I thought to myself, yes, I can be a peacemaker. Yes, I will show mercy. Yes, I will hunger for righteousness. And I did all of that, hungering for righteousness as I was lost in my sin. And I told myself, whenever I was unmerciful and unloving, next time I'll be more merciful. And every time that I thought, yes, I'm pure in heart and I shall see God, I fell into the snares of the devil who was waiting to accuse me of the sin in my life. Sermon on the Mount sounds so pleasant. And yet Jesus knows full well what that sermon is going to do to people. It's going to wreck them. It's going to bring them to their knees. I'm just going to go quickly through a couple of things. For the next couple of minutes, our focus will be on that first function of the law, primarily. The primary way that God uses his good and holy law in our lives. One theologian said it like this, the law says do this, and it never gets done completely. 
Grace says, the gospel says, believe in this because it's already been done for you. You know, one of my favorite things um, about getting to preach the gospel, to share it with people, is that, and we talked about this on Wednesday at our house, is that oftentimes I fail, however you want to use the language. I share the good news, and usually it's met with, ah, no, I'd rather not hear that. Here's a part of the good news for that person that doesn't want to hear it. It doesn't matter. It's still true for them. All they have to do is believe it. And yet it's in those failures that I'm constantly reminded that it's not me that's saving. It's not even me that's preaching and being heard that is saving. But it is God working through, rather God the Holy Spirit that is doing it. Changing people's hearts and changing their minds. Um, I have scripture references, but it's, it's actually going to be more exhausting for all of us if I, if I go through each one of them. Next week, I'll make my notes available up here in a more organized way for you. I'm just going to scroll through some things similar to that last statement. The law says you are a sinner, and because of that, you are condemned. But the gospel says Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The law comes back to us and says, didn't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And therefore, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then the gospel says, God has made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that you and I might become the righteousness of God. The law tries again and says, pay me what you owe me, or else I'm going to throw you in prison. But the gospel says, Christ gave himself as a ransom for you, and so you have been redeemed. The law shouts at us, you have not done all that I have required of you, therefore you are cut off from me, and you are not of my people. But the gospel sings loudly, Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. He was even made a curse for you. Again, the law demands you are guilty before God and cannot escape the judgment of a holy God. But the gospel promises the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. It's in these beautiful truths that each and every week, I might not do it well all the time, but I seek to walk us through. I seek to hold up God's law to each and every one of us. Not to condemn you, though that is what is going to happen but so that we can all taste the sweetness of the good news that Christ has died for us. Um, so here's the, here's the deal. I, uh, this was originally going to be a three-part series, 
and I'm not going to make us stay for an hour and a half this morning. <laughs> I, I was unsure how much, will, how much I was willing to pummel you with the law before we got to the gospel. Um, and this is about four months of research and study going into this. So I was going to walk us through the entire letter to the Galatians. Um, I'm not going to do that right now. Um, instead, I'm going to try to condense it as much as I can. As much as I can in the next couple of minutes. When Paul gives his presentation of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, we read this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And we'll stop there. I've already listed off, and I, I don't want to be up here naming names or anything like that, but I already listed off two of the ditches that we can fall into. One more quotation from Martin Luther. Um, when talking about this, this good news that the gospel offers, that we do no work and that Christ does all the work on our behalf, he described it as a drunk person trying to climb on a horse. Okay, <laughs> And he described it that whenever, whenever the, the person could get his vision straightened and throw his leg over the horse, he was falling right in the opposite ditch. And then he builds up the momentum and he climbs back on that horse and he falls off on the other side. This is a picture of our Christian lives when we attempt to work out our salvation for ourselves. Now, we all work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but when we work out our salvation for ourselves, we come to two conclusions. Like we already said, the first of those conclusions is, perhaps, just maybe, if I do my best, God will do the rest. And then we see our error, and we climb on that horse, and we fall off on the other side, and we say, this time, I'm going to obey that law to the T. I'm going to dot every I, and I'm going to cross every T, and everything will be perfect with me. And then we realize that we've gotten it wrong again. The good news is, Christian, that we have the good news. You and I are both going to do that. We might even do it today. We might even do it all week long. And that's why each and every week we come back here together and the gospel is proclaimed. I want you to stay on that horse. I don't want you falling off in the ditch. Just recently, um, a very famous pastor of a large corporation said that we should disconnect ourselves from the Old Testament that it's weighed down with law and with burden. And there's better ways of doing it. For instance, in the New Testament, we're called to live according to the law of love. To love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors ourselves. And that is a good summary of the law. But it's not the whole law. We can't disconnect ourselves from it because we, as, as we saw Paul just say to the church in Corinth, 
Christ died according to the Scripture. That is, like God's Word said He was going to for you and for me. And Christ again lives like God's Word said He was going to for you and for me. And even if we disconnect ourselves, we have another 1,050 laws, commands, that we'd have to adhere to to somehow better Christ. And as Paul reminds us in his letter to the Galatians, what are you doing? You foolish people, talking not to you right now, to me and to you. Are you deserting Christ? Have you so easily lost track of the fact that you cannot complete yourself, that you cannot perfect yourself? Also in Galatians, Paul goes on to say that we have freedom in Christ. What could this freedom possibly be? Freedom to live however we want? Not exactly. We have the freedom to not work for our salvation and to not become a slave to our own desires and to not become a slave to the law. Rather, we are slaves to Christ who graciously died for us and lives for us and reigns for us. We have freedom in Christ We have freedom to live lives of faithfulness, not tied down to the guilt that we carry when we read or hear God's law alone. And not weighed down by the guilt that we know Satan the accuser would have us feel. We have the the freedom to be faithful where God has already called us to. And freedom to know that when we fail, we can lean back onto Christ. That we can daily rely on His righteous person and rest in His saving work for us. That's what this is. We talked about this in our family meal together. That there are areas in our life that God has already called us to. Why is this important, this this idea of vocation, that God has called you in your home to be a mother, brother, sister, grandma, grandpa, auntie, uncle, whatever it is, friend. God has called you into that home to be a messenger of the good news. God has called you into the church to receive and to be a messenger of the good news. And God has called you into the world places, three of them, that you're already at. That is to say, there is no law requiring you to go out and make some awkward new friendships that then you're going to awkwardly share the gospel with people. Although, if you're good at it, do that. You've already been called to friendships and relationships. People that you know and see. In the New Testament, we know these people as neighbors. Every single day. Tara's my closest neighbor. Finnegan's next, right? Okay. And it goes outward from there. We're not even called to a law of going out and, well, what does Jesus say to the rich young ruler? Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he's sad and he walks away. Why? 
The rich young ruler misunderstood what Jesus was saying. Would that have been a good thing for him to do? Perhaps. Was Jesus commanding it of him? Yes and no. He was actually commanding the rich young ruler to see, you have not abided by the law. Stop trying. Rest in and rely upon me. So what's our big idea? Through the law, God condemns. But through the gospel, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Said one more way, even though we've said it many ways already this morning. As soon as I get all my notes about me. (laughs) At the time of judgment, the law of God will justly condemn Declare us condemned. And the gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us. To suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just do that from eternity on. He actually did it. On the cross for free for each and every one of us. That's the good news. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, we are thankful this morning that we are not called to live in a impossibility. And we are also thankful this morning that even in our most faithful times, when we slip up, when we mistake, fall into mistakes, when we fall into sin, when we're riding straight on that horse and we fall into one ditch or the other, your grace is still sufficient for us. And God, we are thankful that you declared that this good news was for us, that your body was given to us for our sin. Thank you for saving us. Lord, if there is anyone in this room that does not yet understand what that means, does not yet understand that good news, in unison right now, Lord, we pray for that person that they would understand the good news of the free salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, it's in his name that we pray. It's in his name that we give thanks. Thank you for his death died for us, his perfect life lived for us, and his resurrection through which we know that we can live and live more fully each and every day and with you, Father, forever. Amen. Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.